0: Well, I'd like to pray uh, one more time before we get to God's Word this morning. All right, let's pray. Father, we need your Word. We need the truths of the Gospel this morning, Lord. We need your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. There's no um, oration that I can give that will change people, that will create new desires for your word that will foster desires that are weak. There's, there's nothing I can do, uh, certainly in my own strength, to do that. And so we need you to meet with us together this morning, Lord. We need you to superintend our time and direct our thoughts and our focus toward you into the process of sanctification that is by your Spirit. We want to grow more like Christ. We want to mature in the faith. We want to be edified. We want our body to be strengthened for the mission that we have in this community and in this world. And that requires you meeting with us, Lord. And so uh, we pray for that this morning. We ask all these things in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you can open up to Titus chapter 3. We're going to finish up this little letter this morning. And I know for those of you who are working on a college degree at this point in time, that it probably at times feels like you may never, ever finish. Like those four years are stretching on or maybe six years or maybe eight years or whatever it may be is stretching on and on and on and you're never going to finish. And when you think that you will be in school forever, I want you to remember a man from Kalamazoo, Michigan named Michael Nicholson. What's so special about Mike, and why do you need to think on him when you're frustrated with your studies? Well, Mike is, at this point, 77 years old, and he has 30 earned degrees. He's been in school since 1963, and he holds degrees from a dozen different schools, most in Michigan, some in Texas, Canada, Indiana, His first degree in 1963 was from William Tyndale College in Farmington Hills, and it's a bachelor's in religious education. And he has obviously multiple other types of degrees. I'm going to read a couple of them to you. He has a master's in theology from Dallas Theological Seminary, he has a master of arts in classroom teaching from Eastern Michigan. A doctor of education from Western Michigan, an MBA from Western Michigan, a master of science in library science from Wayne State, a master's in health administration from Grand Valley State, and the list goes on and on and on. And you can find it online if you're curious about this guy's education. They ought to put a picture of Michael next to the term lifelong learner in the dictionary, I think. And I was fascinated to read about him and how much he enjoys school. Now, no one in here has the time or the inclination to spend 45 years in school. At least I don't think so. But I do think this term that you see on the screen here is something that is important for every believer. We are to be lifelong learners, constantly pursuing understanding of the gospel constantly pursuing the way that doctrine is explained in this book of Titus, what we've seen of of God's good work, the good news of the gospel. And we're also to be constantly, consistently making the connection between those doctrinal truths and everyday life and our lifestyle. We can't just stop the moment we get saved and assume we understand the gospel and that's good. It's the simple good news, and I've got it. I got saved, and now I'm good. No, we have to be lifelong learners who apply these truths to our lives. And that exhortation to be a lifelong learner is exactly the way that Paul ends this letter to Titus in Titus 3, verses 12 to 15. Now, we're going to narrow in this morning on the last command that Paul gives to Titus here, and it's in verse 14, But before we get there, I want to sort of summarize and look at this whole uh, conclusion to the letter. If you remember back in the very beginning of our study in Titus, I talked about the structure of the book of Titus. And there's there's a greeting at the beginning. Most of Paul's letters are set up this way. There's a greeting, an introduction, and a greeting at the beginning. There's the body of the letter where he discusses the various themes. And then there's the conclusion to the letter, which is... The way it is here in Titus, it's the way it is in a lot of the other ones, uh, uh, the other of Paul's letters. And in the conclusions, he gives personal greetings. Uh, You probably remember reading other of Paul's letters and seeing these various names that are given there. And it's the same thing here in Titus. He gives personal greetings and he concludes the letter. Well, here he does two things. He gives these personal greetings and instructions. And then he sort of brings the theme of the letter back into the forefront and gives Titus one final exhortation to apply the things that he's been taught in this letter. Now, when you look at this conclusion, verses 12 to 15 as a whole, there's something interesting that happens here, and I want to look at this before we get to this uh, exhortation here in verse 14. But when you look at this as a whole, maybe it looks like some random instructions or some names that we don't really know exactly who these people are, But what Paul is doing here is he's focused on the broader mission of the church. And Paul is all about wanting that mission to continue to go forward and to be completed. He wants the gospel to go to unbelievers. He wants churches to be strengthened. And he gives specific instructions, practical instructions on how some of that can be fostered. You'll notice here in verse 12, look there. When I send Artemis... Ortychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Now, what's he doing? He's sending two co-workers to Crete to replace Titus so that Titus can visit Paul for the winter. It's difficult to travel uh, on the Mediterranean Sea over the winter, so he wants Titus to come to him there. Why? Well, he doesn't say explicitly, but chances are it's going to be for coaching and ministry and help and trying to encourage Titus in the work that he's doing on Crete, so that when he returns, he can more fully accomplish his mission there. So he wants to spend time with them, and he's going to replace him for that season of ministry. And then also look at verse 13. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. These guys are probably the ones who brought this little letter of Titus to Titus on Crete, and he tells Titus, look, anything you need to do to help them on their way, on their mission, I want you to do that and provide for them. And then if you look down at verse 15, he says, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Obviously, there's a lot of people who are around Paul who are partnered with him in gospel ministry, and they are very interested in what is happening on the island of Crete. And so Paul says, they greet you. They're concerned about you. Send their love, their concern. We want to send their love and their concern. And we want you to also greet those who know us and love our ministry who are there on Crete. And so you can see in this greeting or in this conclusion to the letter here, there's bringing together all these people who are interested in the mission and saying, this is what we want to happen and we want to accomplish. And as you read these verses And as you read other verses like them in Pauline letters, don't just skip over them and assume, well, these are just names that I don't really know who they are. But all scripture is profitable and be encouraged that Paul is passionate about the mission, even in these details in the conclusion to the letter. He's focused on the mission. And right in the midst of this, he gives one final exhortation and he wants Titus to push forward this theme that he's been giving in the letter for the accomplishment of the mission. I mean, that's really what what Paul is all about here. Apply the gospel to everyday life, build up believers, and the way that you live in the world is significant. And he wants to encourage Titus with that. He wants him to tighten the connection between doctrine and lifestyle. So look at this command with me in verse 14. This is where we're going to spend our morning. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. I mean, this is the central theme of the letter, right? You're probably tired of hearing me talk about doctrine working itself out in everyday life, devoting yourselves to good works. But that's where he goes back to because that's been the main message of this little letter the overwhelming message of this letter. And what I want to do today is I want to try to think practically. I think of this as an exhortation to all that we've learned and all that we've studied in Titus. But I want to think practically and try to help us understand how we devote ourselves to good works. How does the gospel, how do these doctrinal truths work their way into everyday life and change the way we live, the way we act, and what we love? I want to meditate on that some this morning, all right? So we're going to see two ways to turn sound doctrine into a lifestyle of good works. And I'm hoping this will be immensely practical for you this morning. Two ways to turn sound doctrine into a lifestyle of good works. And the first one of these you can see up there is teaching or to be taught, is how you turn lifestyle or turn sound doctrine into a lifestyle of good works. In verse 14, it says, Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Now, the, the word learn there carries a lot of weight in this exhortation. That's the command there. It has a couple of significant ideas, and these significant ideas are going to be our two points this morning, our two ways to turn sound doctrine into a lifestyle of good works. And when you think about learning, one of the aspects of learning is pretty obvious to us, I think. To learn something is to have knowledge transferred to you. You receive new knowledge. You sit, you listen to a lecture, and you know something that is new to you or it's put in a fresh way to you. It has to be the transfer of knowledge. That has to take place for us to learn things. And as Christians, we fully expect the Bible to teach us, to give us the knowledge that we need to know what is right and what is wrong. I mean, that's what you think of when you think of going to scripture. I'm going to learn what is right and what is wrong to do. And that's necessary. I mean, if you look at our doctrinal statement, I don't know when the last time you read this was, I'd encourage you to do so, but here's what our doctrinal statement says. We believe the Holy Scriptures to be the very word of God, the product of the breath of God, and thus verbally inspired in all parts, and therefore wholly without error as originally given by God. And then look at this. Altogether sufficient in themselves as our only infallible rule of faith and practice. They tell us how to live. The supreme standard by which all human conduct, there it is again, Creeds and opinions should be tried. And you know this to be true of God's word. We expect this. The Bible should teach us how to live. To devote yourselves to good works, to learn to do that, you have to know your Bible. But here's, I think, the challenge for us. How exactly does the Bible teach us to live, to conduct ourselves, to be engaged in good works? How does the Bible teach us to do this? I'm going to phrase this with a little more blunt force for you so that we're understanding the dilemma here. How does a 2,000-year-old book teach you what is right and what is wrong? I mean, you probably don't pick up other old books and expect them to instruct you in how to live. So how does the Bible do this for us? How does it teach us? And you might be sitting there thinking, well, I mean, it's pretty simple. You just read the Bible and you do what it says. Well, it's not always that simple, and I think our lives are evident of that, evidence of that. And I think the way the Bible teaches us, instructs us to live, to conduct ourselves, moves beyond simply making a list of commands and doing them or not doing the prohibitions in Scripture. I think it moves beyond that. That's certainly a part of it, and you'll see that. But Scripture instructs us in other ways on how to live. And I think to really get what Paul is saying, to learn to devote yourselves to good works, you have to come to grips with all of the ways that Scripture teaches us to know right from wrong. And I want to give you four this morning, okay? So these four ways that Scripture instructs us and teaches us right from wrong, these are from an ethics book that I read this year by a guy named Richard Hayes. Um, just so you know that I didn't come up with these. Uh, but these four ways I think will shape and will influence your Bible reading and your interaction with God's word. And that's that's what I want to happen. It'll give it a fuller scope to to the way you you study God's word. All right. So the first of these, I'm going to list them. How are we taught to do good works? Obviously, Scripture gives us gives us commands I mean, there's no doubt about it thou shalt not murder. (laughs) That is a clear command. And so it's important. You and I have to know what does the Bible prohibit? What can we not do? And what does the Bible demand? We have to know those things. We have to be aware of the commands of scripture. And let me just say this. It is not legalistic to recognize the commands of scripture. It doesn't make you a legalist to go, the Bible says this, therefore, it is obligatory on the way I live to obey this command. It doesn't make you a legalist. God prohibits certain actions and attitudes, and he commands others for our good and for his glory. Those two things go together, our good and his glory. So the commands are, are valuable, they're, they're sweet, they're delightful to us as we know them and as we seek to obey them. But you can't come to Scripture and think that the only weight that the Bible puts on us ethically is commands. That if you can just list out all the things you should do and all the things you shouldn't do, that will end up meeting the requirement that God has for us ethically or how we're to live. That you'll be able to devote yourself to good works if you can just do that. That doesn't cut it. When it comes to scripture, it's a a thin way to read your Bible, not a thick way to read your Bible. So the second way the Bible teaches us to do good works is it gives us principles. So you should be alert when you read your Bible for commands and you should be alert for principles. And how those principles shape the way you live. We tend to think of commands as pretty straightforward, although I think it's a little more tricky than that when it comes to obeying and applying a command, but they're pretty straightforward, right? For the most part. But principles, this is where you really start to to learn to devote yourself to good works. This is what begins to require a lot more detailed thinking and application. This is where you begin to connect theology, doctrine, and lifestyle when you have these principles. You have to think about this a little bit. For example... We are to love others. That is, a, that is a principle. It certainly is a command, but it's a broader principle that we are to live by. We are to live in a way that reflects Christ's love and sacrificial love. We are to love others. Now, what does it look like for you to love others this week? Well, it depends. And this is where wisdom comes in, skill in living. Looking like loving others may mean you provide a meal for someone after surgery. Loving someone else may mean that you confront someone over the sin that they're living in. That could be an act of love. That could be a way that you apply this principle. And so we have to wrestle with what these principles are in Scripture. Principles are general statements that you and I then have to carefully apply to the context in which we're living in. And scripture gives us many of these. You have to learn to match the principle in scripture to life every day. And again, that's, that's wisdom, that's skill, that's ability to handle and to live out God's word. So we have to learn to faithfully and consistently apply those. And this is one of the things that honestly, at small groups. We should be talking about how do we apply these principles? Let's help one another with these things. All right. Third, paradigms. So you've got commands, you've got principles, and you've also got paradigms. Now, what, what is this? Think about your reaction to the story of the Good Samaritan. How does that story sit on you when you read it? You are drawn, at least I hope you are drawn, to the sacrifice and the good actions of the traveler, of the Samaritan. You want to be like him as you read it. And the story is intentionally told that way. As an example, you're also, I hope, disgusted by the pious religious leaders who don't act on their faith but simply leave this guy, this guy who's been robbed to die by the side of the road. And when you read about them, you, it's disgusting to you and you don't want to be like them. The story of the Good Samaritan is a paradigm. When you read it, you begin to want to be like the Samaritan. You want to have a faith that actually works itself out in daily living as you read that story. And you don't want to be hypocrites like the Levite and the priest. That's a paradigm. The Bible teaches us to devote ourselves to good works by paradigms. But these aren't simply a list of commands. It's a a way of seeing the world. And the Bible, Scripture is filled with stories that shape our understanding of the world and ourselves, and they shape our desires. As you read that story, you should want different things. Your heart is attracted to certain ways of living. And so the stories of Scripture work on us that way, and they shape us, and they change us. And so what we have to do when we read these paradigms in Scripture is we have to enter into that story. We have to put ourselves in the story of the Good Samaritan, And say, how am I? Who am I in this story? How am I acting? How does my life match up with these individuals? What is this trying to teach me? And as we do that, it will change the way we see the world and ourselves and change our desires. So paradigms are important for learning to devote yourself to good works. And then lastly is a worldview. Scripture is one big story. It is the true story of the world. And this story that we have puts all of life in context. It tells us the truth about everything. Not every detail, but it gives us the truth of the world, what we're here for, the bigger questions of life. And so what we have to do is we have to take this story and let it shape the way we see ourselves and the way we see the world. It gives us a worldview. For example, every human being is made in the image of God. That is a way of seeing the world. It's a way of seeing ourselves that scripture shapes. Therefore, because of that, it has, that truth has implications for the way we respond to life, the way we value life from the womb to the tomb and everything in between, right? That worldview shapes how we live and how we devote ourselves to good works. So all four of these are important. It's not enough to just list the commands. You have to have all four of these working on you to learn to give yourself to good works. And the Bible teaches us to do this. This is why it's so important for us to immerse ourselves in God's word. This is probably the reason that we're so lacking in devoting ourselves to good works at times. Because we just go to Scripture and we think, well, do's and don'ts, okay, fine. And then we don't get to these other areas. And these other areas are really where our hearts begin to be shaped and changed. And our desires are altered. And we begin to want new things and see the world in a new way. And see people as God sees them. And then we begin to devote ourselves to good works out of the overflow of being taught by God's Word. And so this is why you and I have to immerse ourselves in Scripture. We have to give ourselves to the whole Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, even the parts that are confusing at first read, and we don't understand how they apply to our lives. We have to get the whole story, and we have to love this book and know this book. You cannot, I cannot learn to do good works without acquaintance with this book each and every day, each and every week. We have to give attention to these four areas. But the other way that turns sound doctrine into a lifestyle of good works is training. We need to be taught by God's word in these four areas, but we also need to be trained to do good works. Now, I told you there were kind of two components to this word in verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. This second component is actually the the more prominent one in the word. There certainly has to be an intellectual component to learning, engagement with God's word, But this is the more prominent component, and it's the practice element. It's the training element that we have to be engaged in to devote ourselves to good works. And this has more to do with doing than learning in a classroom. And the same word here, learn, is used a couple of other times. Let me show you one of these. You're familiar with this passage uh, in Scripture, Philippians 4. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. Now, Paul knew intellectually that he could be content in whatever circumstance. But he says it was through the experience, through the practice, through having these events happen to him of being both poor and having abundance, that he learned what it actually looks like to be content. And that's the way that this word is most prominently used in Titus chapter 3. It's learning through circumstances and experience. The wise theologian Mark Twain once said, if you hold a cat by the tail, you learn things that cannot be learned in any other way. (laughs) And you know that to be true. There's There's a certain kind of knowledge of education, let's say, that you can only receive through knowledge working itself out in experience. When we do premarital counseling, when we have couples That are getting ready to get married. We tell them the principles that you are learning intellectually now before marriage. Will be learned in a different way in marriage. You'll experience it. And it will increase your knowledge. You'll know them intellectually. You'll know that you need to communicate. You'll know that you have to give of yourself sacrificially. You'll know that you need to budget and take care of your finances. But once you're married, you will know that you will learn that you will be trained in that in a different way. And so what Paul is saying here in Titus chapter 3 is we have to take the knowledge that we've gleaned from scripture and we have to use it repeatedly in the function of daily life. That is the definition of training, is it not? Taking what you know and using it over and over again. If you work or did work on an assembly line, you know this to be true. You take the basic knowledge that you have of this task that you are supposed to do, and you do that task repeatedly, you become more proficient at it, you get better at it, and through practice, you have learned to do your job well. That's what this is. So what does it look like to be trained to do good works? Three, three areas. All right. First, virtue development. Now, Doing good is not just a matter of discerning what actions to do and then going and doing them. I love this word virtue. You've heard me use this before, but I I love this word because I think it sums up a lot of what the New Testament teaches about godliness and about sanctification. Sanctification is a matter not just of doing the right things, although it is that, it's a matter of character development. It's a matter of being the right type of person. It's changing who you are at the most fundamental level to be like Jesus Christ. And that's a virtue. That's what's happening. And this is something that you are trained in. You acquire the knowledge and then you practice it. You work it out in daily life. The fruits of the spirit become settled dispositions. It's a way of being in the world that becomes natural to us over time and over experience, through the application of knowledge. I mean, you are to be a gentle person, not just do gentle things. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is, to be gentle. You are to be joyful, not just have joy on occasion in certain situations. You see the difference there? It's both. You do have joy on certain occasions, but you have that joy because you have the fruit of the Spirit. It's a disposition, a way of being in the world. That you have been trained and has been developed in you. Not a quick fix at all. And when you are trained in virtues, in character development, in Christ likeness, then you will more quickly and naturally and easily perform good works. And that's why Paul says here, you have to learn to devote yourself to good works. It's about who you are. I don't know. If any of you saw the story, it's probably been a couple weeks now of the Southwest airline pilot, uh, Tammy Jo Schultz. Any of you see this story about her? Only a few people did. Wow. So there's this woman flying a Southwest airline flight and partway through the flight, I think it was only about 20 minutes into the flight, an engine on the side of the plane blew up, blew a hole in the side of the plane, almost sucked one passenger out, ended up killing that passenger. And obviously created quite a bit of panic on the flight and obvious issues with the plane, 30-some 30, 30 thousand feet up in the air. Well, if you if you go back, and I'd encourage you to do this, go back and read about that story and read or and listen to the audio of her calling the tower flight control and talking through what had happened. I mean, it sounds like she has just had her morning tea and... She is reading the newspaper, and everything is good. I mean, the words she's saying are frightening, but the calm demeanor in the midst of that absolute chaos is unbelievable. Now, how did she come to that? Well, it wasn't in the moment. There were probably years and years of experiences and character development where she became a person of courage and of level-headedness, and when that happened, she was able to respond calmly, and coolly, and deal with it. And she ended up saving everyone else on that flight because of her calm, level-headed disposition. She did the right thing because she was the right type of person. She is the right type of person. And that's what Paul's saying here. Learn to devote yourself to good works. Learn to do the right thing because you are the right type of person. Develop virtue. Now, how do we do that? It's not... It's not moral energy trying to do the right thing over and over again. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that trains you and changes you as you interact with God's word and other things that we're going to talk about this morning. But it's the work of the spirit inside of you that puts on the fruits of the spirit and these virtues that we're talking about. Now, what else here? I told you three areas. Virtue development, become the right type of person. How are you trained to do good works? You also are trained in actions. Now, this sounds redundant, doesn't it? Right? Like, to be a person who does that which is good, do that which is good. Duh. But Paul says here, look at verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. When he says to devote themselves, that word has the idea of of leading or presiding over this sphere of good works, this area of good works. So I think what he wants people to do is to feel responsible to work out the gospel in daily life, to be responsible for good works. What he wants is people to care, to have an interest in, as if they're in charge of this area. They say, this is my responsibility and I'm going to act in this way. Every believer should feel personally responsible for good works to be Performed in their life, his or her life. Now, when you think about this, it, it's not saying that this afternoon that each one of us has to go out and has to do some massive good work, like giving away your car this afternoon. That's not what Paul is arguing for here. The way to feel responsible for good works is to perform the little things you can in your sphere of influence. Start small. Start with the things you know you need to do and act on them. Husbands, how will you treat your wives and your kids? What act of kindness will you do this week to your coworker? Start in your sphere of influence and make it a habit of acting in daily life as you should, and it will become a natural part of life. Actions form you into a new type of person who then practices these things on a regular basis. That Southwest airline pilot, she had practiced, she had done the right thing in small ways over and over again, a thousand little ways. So it became second nature to her. She was ready for the crisis. And then lastly, and most importantly here to be trained to do good works, you have to be the, to develop the type of person you are, put on the fruits of the spirit You have to act on it. It's not enough to just think about it. You have to begin in small ways to live this out and it will develop into more a part of who you are. And then most importantly, and what brings all of this together is we have to give ourselves to the means of grace. The means of grace that God has given us. When Paul says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works here, He's not just talking about good actions that any moral unbeliever can do. That's not what he's looking for. He is looking for spirit-empowered, Christ-like ways of living. He wants us to live out our status as new creation Christians. So the means of grace are necessary for our character and our actions to be aimed in the right direction. These Practices, the means of grace point us in the right direction and shape us to be the right type of people. So what do I mean by the means of grace? What are we talking about there? Well, God in his kindness has given to us as Christians practices, things we're supposed to do over and over again that will form us into the right type of people who are devoted to good works. When they're engaged in properly, these practices form us into mature disciples. What are they? I mean, you know them. Read your Bible. Read your Bible according to the the four things I gave you earlier. Read your Bible. Pray. Fellowship with other believers. Attend worship and engage in the singing and the praying. And the preaching of God's word. These are means of grace. They're very simple things that God has given us to do. And when we practice these in the, the right way. Over time. Imperceptibly. Slowly. They shape us and form us into certain kinds of people. Now. There's a little bit of a misunderstanding of means of grace sometimes. And you may not articulate this misunderstanding. But a lot of us fall into this trap. All right, why we call them means of grace, these are not means of grace because by doing them, you and I earn God's favor. God does not appreciate us more because we read our Bibles and pray and attend worship. We call these means of grace because as you and I participate in these things that God has given us, these practices. That he has given us as we participate in them. You, you and I know and experience God's grace more and more. You don't earn it. You experience it. You're more aware of it. And you're able to delight in God's grace and favor toward us. And man, we, we twist these things, don't we? We make them ways of earning God's favor. We think that if we show up to church that God will like us more. Or we feel guilty if we don't read our Bible for a couple of days and we think we've got to get back into God's good graces. So I'm going to read for an extra 30 minutes today so God will appreciate and like me more. But that's a complete misunderstanding of the means of grace. The more you read your Bible in humility and with a desire to learn, the more you will experience the reality of God's grace. You will be more aware of it. You don't earn your spouse's favor by reading the love letter that they wrote to you. You experience their favor and their affection by reading over and over again the love letter that they wrote to you. And that's the way the means of grace work. As coming to church on Sunday should be an opportunity for us to open ourselves up and experience God's grace. Not come in feeling guilty because I've had a rough week, I've sinned a little too much this week, and now I gotta try to... To get God to like me again. It's not how it works. When we show up to church on Sunday, we do not strong arm God into showing favor to us. But when you show up with humility and a desire to learn, you position yourself to see his love letter. To open his love letter and to bask in the glory of his love. That's what we're doing here on Sunday morning. And if that's the right understanding of the means of grace, then I wonder why we don't participate in them more than we do. It should be an absolute joy for me to open God's word, his love letter, and read about this God who has gone to such great lengths to redeem us and to save us from our sin. And I read about it not so he'll love me more, but so I know his love more and I experience it more. And when you and I habitually give ourselves to these means of grace, we are trained to devote ourselves to good works. That's how this takes place. That's how we are changed. That's how we're mature disciples who look like Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul wants here. Look back at verse 14. Notice what he says at the end. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So as to help cases of urgent need, and then look at this last little phrase, and not be unfruitful. Let's be lifelong learners who turn into lifelong fruit producers. God delights in us producing fruit for his honor and his glory. And so let's learn to connect doctrine And life through teaching and through training so that we will be lifelong fruit producers. It's wonderful that that guy went to school, Michael, for 30 degrees over a period of 45 years. But how much better if you're able to use the knowledge that you gain from that education and to impact other people. How much better for us as Christians if we're going full tilt to know God's word and understand his word. And then we're trained by our practices to work that out in daily life and to help others and sacrificially serve others with the gospel. We want to stand before the throne one day and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You produced much fruit in good works for God's glory and for your good. The fitting conclusion to this letter. It pulls everything together. And this is, this is my desire for us. This is my desire for me, for you. We want to be a people who learn to give ourselves to good works. For God's glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, we fall so short of this so often. And yet as we even talked about, your grace is abundant and sufficient. You take delight in us when we are in the process of learning to devote ourselves to good works. It's all through your Holy Spirit empowering and enabling as we give ourselves to the means of grace and as we read the love letter that you have written us and as we practice it. And so I pray for our church body. I pray that this this word from Paul to Titus would sink in deep today that we would ponder these things that this week we would come to your word with fresh enthusiasm to open it, to learn what life should look like to learn of your love and care and goodness. And then to work that out in daily life. Thank you for the gift of your Holy spirit who makes all of this possible so that we're not, striving in our own flesh, in our own works, and our own desires. Thank you for your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.